Sunday sermon in three, two, one. We continue our worship service through the preaching of God's Word. And this morning, we will be resuming our series in the One Another's. And uh, so please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians, and we'll be looking at chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes this, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So you, if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for how your word informs us of your righteous standard for our lives. And Lord, even though we know that the standard that you call us to is a high standard, we know that you are the one who empowers us to try to glorify you as we put off the old self and put on the new self, which in the likeness of Christ has been created. Lord, we know that we need your grace to be more like Christ, and we pray that you would give us that grace, that you would give us the patience, the resolve, the endurance to strive to be more like your Son, Jesus Christ, in our lives. We pray that you would help us to be encouraged and to be challenged to do that all the more as we study your word this morning. We pray that you would honor yourself through the preaching of your word this morning. Help our hearts to be ready to listen to your word. Give us a heart of humility. Give us a heart of submission, willing to submit to you, Father. Help us strive to please you in all respects. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you observed someone doing something that is clearly wrong? Something that clearly dishonors God? I'm sure you have. All of us have. 
Right? And, and you know that you should probably do something to correct them. But you're just not sure if you should do it, if it's right for you to do it, if you're allowed to go up to them and to talk to them. And so instead of going up to talk to them, you stop yourself. Or you stop yourself from correcting that person. Perhaps in the past you weren't afraid to correct someone when you saw their sinful behavior, but after you've confronted them, you've heard those infamous words, didn't Jesus say, don't judge lest you be judged? For many of us, hearing that response will stop us in our tracks. We think back to a time when we studied the Bible and we think, yeah, yeah, I remember Jesus saying something like that. I remember him saying that we aren't to judge lest we be judged. So, so maybe instead of, of talking to someone else about their sin, maybe I just need to work on be, being more loving and more gracious. Now, while it is true that some of us definitely need to work on being more loving and gracious towards others, we also need to be mindful of the fact that Matthew chapter 7, it goes beyond verse 1. What Jesus is saying, and he'll even say it a few verses later, is that we ought to be careful of the standard by which we judge other people. Because our tendency is to ignore our own sins. And for this reason, he gives that famous illustration, get that log out of your own eye before you address the speck in your brother's eye. Jesus still expects for us to lovingly confront one another we just have to make sure that the way that we judge one another is according to his righteous standards, not ours. And that we ourselves are making sure that we are humbling ourselves and confessing sin before we do any sort of judging. Our sermon passage this morning, it follows a stinging rebuke from Paul over the Corinthians' failure to rebuke and church discipline a man who was guilty of sexual immorality that even the Gentiles in the area did not do. It, was, it didn't even exist among unbelievers. And despite this failure, the Corinthian believers, the Corinthian church, they boasted in their wisdom. They boasted in their spirituality. And so Paul, he rebukes them for their arrogance. And he reminds them that it is their duty before God to intervene in the lives of fellow believers. Uh, especially when they're caught in sin. And, and this intervention isn't limited to matters of church discipline, but as we see today, it extends to peacemaking between two warring believers. If you feel like you don't have a right to do so, what Paul is saying to you is, no, yes, you do. Yes, you do. Now, the majority of you probably, upon looking at the sermon title, think, this sermon is not for me. Do not sue one another. I'm not going to sue anybody. This is not really applicable to me, so maybe I'll just let the sermon run and I'll go do something else. Well, you could do that, but I pray that you would, would, would stop and you would consider what the Word of God has to say for us this morning. This sermon is applicable to you because even though we might not find ourselves in a situation where we would 
wants to sue another believer, Paul is giving us principles to understand how we can engage in conflict resolution in our lives and in the lives of those who are around us. And this, by the way, this sermon, by the way, is not legal advice, nor is it teaching that lawsuits of all kinds are inappropriate. That's not what we're saying today. That's not, our, that's not the goal of our message. But what we want to understand are the general principles that are found in Scripture that explain to us why we ought not to sue one another and, and why we ought to reconcile with one another. Okay, and we're going to do that. We're going to examine these principles of conflict resolution in our text this morning by observing two reasons, two reasons why Christians should not sue one another. Okay, two reasons why Christians should not sue one another. The first reason why Christians should not sue one another is because God provides competency to handle disputes. God provides competency to handle disputes. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare, go, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So Paul, he confirms at the end of chapter 5 that we are to be involved in one another's lives. We're supposed to confront one another with the sins that we, that we, may, be, uh, we may be stuck in or sins that we're not even aware of that's in our lives. And here in chapter 6, his line of argument is basically this. If Christians are to rightly judge one another when they are in sin, why is it, why is it that we take one another to court to settle disputes instead of dealing with that sin ourselves? Why is it that we take each other to court instead of dealing with our sins ourselves. Now, if you think that America, the, the, the America that we live in today is a litigious society, the society that the Corinthians lived in was equally litigious, if not more so. Those who shared in this uh, Roman Greco culture, uh, Greco-Roman culture, when, when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, they lived in a time where lawsuits were a regular part of life. And it was uh, even seen by some as a form of intellectual challenge and entertainment as all of these lawsuits took place in the public square. At the heart of this culture, which loved lawsuits, was a culture of sin. A culture of sin against one another that ratcheted up to the point where these believers felt like there was no other way for them to get what they wanted except by dragging their neighbor to court. And perhaps, perhaps, some people were justified in, the, in their desire to defend themselves. But what we also see here is a heart of selfishness, a heart of self-interest that insisted, that insisted on personal victory no matter the cost. And so when Paul hears of how this unloving and selfish culture exists in the church, he is very upset, which is why he asks them, Do, does any one of you dare to bring lawsuits against one another before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Now, I don't know about you, but I do not delight in hearing the words, how dare you? Right, how dare you? 
These words signify that we've done something wrong. Sometimes they signify that someone's just being prideful, but the majority of the time, it signifies that we've done something wrong, that we're in trouble. And in this particular case, those who are in trouble with Paul are being rebuked for bringing each other to court before the unrighteous rather than bringing their disputes before the saints. Now, when Paul calls the judges of the courts unrighteous, he's not necessarily saying that these judges in the courts were guilty uh, of being unfair and having a lot of biased rulings against people, although there is evidence that ancient courts were corrupt in how they handled justice. No matter that, no matter the fact, what Paul is remarking on here is the salvation status of the judges, the salvation status of the jurors as unsaved individuals. These people were unrighteous in the sense that they have not repented of their sins and placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, they were unrighteous before God. As a result, these people should not be the ones who help Christians settle. They should not be the ones who help Christians be at peace with one another because their value system is not the same as God's value system. They don't care about the issues of the heart. They don't care about the sin that resides within. They're going to adjudicate cases. They're going to decide on cases without regard to the sin that lies underneath all the issues. If you want to think about it this way, they're dealing with the weeds, but they're not dealing with the roots. And judgments like these will not help the church. It will not help true believers have true and lasting unity because it only serves as a band-aid over wounds when surgery is needed. Only the saints are capable of this kind of heart work to ferret out sin to deal with it and to, to help each other deal with it and to spur one another on towards righteousness. That's why the saints are mentioned here as the arbiters that we are to go to when we are in dispute. And as a result, Paul writes here in verse 2, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Now, Paul doesn't really elaborate on what it means for the saints to judge the world or what that's going to look like, right? but he expects the Corinthians to know what he means because the scriptures have spoken on this before. In Daniel 7, 22 and 27, the prophet Daniel, he provides a picture of what the future will look like when the Son of Man comes. He receives his kingdom. He receives this inherited kingdom, and then he shares it with the saints and they will reign with him. Ruling with Christ is an actual part of the Corinthians' future and a part of our future. And so what Paul's point is, is if we're going to rule with Christ over the whole world, there is no reason that Christians should not be able to handle their own disputes against one another. It's a small matter. Why should we be able to handle our own, our own small disputes? Well, it's because God has given us everything that we need. Everything that we need so that we can do his will here on this earth. 
Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3 that through his divine power, God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. And if you skip down a few verses in verses 19 to 21, Peter, he reminds his readers that the true knowledge of Jesus Christ comes from the scriptures, which have been given to mankind by men who were moved by the Holy Spirit to reveal God's salvation plan to mankind. And this is why, brothers and sisters, we believe in the sufficiency of scripture, because in the scriptures, we have the prophetic word more sure. It's not based off of our experiences, but off of the scripture that we know who Jesus Christ is. And we remember 2 Timothy, how 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, how it tells us that the scriptures are profitable for all of our lives, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The word of God is the thing that we need, is the thing that we've been given. And so the scriptures are wholly sufficient to deal with all matters of life and godliness. And so if God has given us everything that we need in this life so that we can live righteously for him and so that we can prepare for our rule with him in the future, but also handle the things of of life now, we have no excuses. No excuses for our failure to competently handle the small disputes of this life. The peace that each Christian has with God is a result of the salvation that God has given us. And and that salvation is a starting point for the peace that we can have individually with others and the peace that we can have others have with the people around them. So if God's forgiveness of us is the basis for our peace with others on an individual level, we should be able to help others who are having difficulty making peace with others figure out how to handle their disputes in a way that pleases God. Now, in verses 3 to 4, Paul continues asking rhetorical questions to help the Corinthians realize their ability to handle disputes in this life when he says this, Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with the matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? So not only will Christians join with Christ in ruling over the world, but Christians will also judge the angels. And uh, that word judge could also mean govern. Um, and it's not clear whether we're going to be judging fallen angels or, or exercising a little bit of authority over the holy angels. Paul doesn't really elaborate on that. But the most important thing for us to consider here with Uh, with what Paul says is that if Christians are going to judge the world, if uh, if we're going to rule over the world, if we're also going to, uh, to judge the angels, if this is what we're going to do, shouldn't we be able to handle disputes which are so much smaller in comparison to judging the world and judging angels. We should, right? Because of the competency that we have from God to deal with matters in the end times and now, why should we give up our right to help one another make peace with others to the courts? Why should we delegate our authority 
to the courts. Now, Paul was not saying that the judicial system of the day was absolutely corrupt and could not be trusted under any circumstances. But what he was noting was how wrong it was that Christians would voluntarily give up their authority, would voluntarily delegate their authority to make peace with one another in a God-honoring way to the courts, whose unbelief and lack of desire to please God would fail to truly deal with the issue. Maybe the legal battle will be won, but reconciliation is not there. War is still in their hearts. Verses 5 or 6 say this, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Now, previously in chapter 4, Paul made it clear that his goal was not to shame the Corinthians as they struggled to understand humility towards one another. Rather, he wrote to instruct them, to help them. It was a a mild rebuke, but it was to help them, it was to instruct them in the way that they should go. But here, in verse 5 of chapter 6, Paul switches his purpose. He switches his tone. He wants his readers, to feel shame for taking one another to court over their disputes. You know, these these court proceedings in Paul's day were not much more different than the ones that we see today. While while part of the strategy to win a case is to pay attention to the details, uh, the logic, and, and the laws of the day, another part of the strategy to win in court was to do whatever was necessary to discredit the other person before the judge and before the jurors. And in doing so, believers who took one another to court were not only failing to resolve their differences in a God-honoring way, but they were also actively breaking peace with one another as they attacked one another in court in an attempt to win their legal cases. And you could put it this way, believers were going to court and they were airing out their dirty laundry before unbelievers. They were revealing the wickedness that was in their hearts before the public. And so Paul's desire for the Corinthians to feel shame was not Paul being mean in any way towards the Corinthians. He was not being over the top. He was not being abusive. He wanted them to feel appropriate shame for their guilt, not only in sinning against one another, but for revealing that sin to the unbelievers in the community. And it's not like we can't ever sin in front of other people, but it's when our sins are so apparent and they're unrepentant, we pursue them with all of our might. When our sins basically make us look just like unbelievers, that is when, that's a, when our sin is a problem. We're all going to sin, but how we respond when we sin is what marks the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. In John 13, 35, Jesus told his disciples that the world would know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. By dragging each other to court and attacking each other, 
these Corinthians, they did not prove themselves to be disciples of Jesus in their actions. Rather, their hypocrisy brought shame upon the name of Christ as they demonstrated that their lives were truly no different than that of the other unbelievers around them. And so the Corinthians, because they are guilty, should rightly feel shame since their behavior ruined the testimony of Christians publicly before unbelievers. And so the feeling of shame that Paul wants them to feel is a shame that would, Lord willing, lead them to repentance. He wants them to repent. And that shame, it doesn't just belong to the ones who are bringing each other to court, but it also belongs to those who are responsible to intervene. That's the rest of the church. The whole church should also feel some shame that their brothers, and mainly in this case their brothers, that their brothers are bringing one another to court and attacking one another viciously before unbelievers. The church should have intervened but they failed to do so. The church should have mediated between these believers, but they failed to do so. This doesn't require a law degree. The word of God has been given to us. This thing, this word that makes us competent to deal with the matters of this life should have been enough for them. They should have been able to confidently go in and help these warring brothers try to honor Christ in their actions, but they didn't. And this Corinthian church, they believe themselves to be spiritually wise, to be spiritually mature, to be abundantly gifted in the spiritual gifts. And that was something that Paul rebuked them for earlier in the book. But his question, it strikes at the heart of that pride. If you all are so wise, why is it that not one of you was wise enough to come alongside these brothers, these spiritual brothers in the Lord, and help them mediate their disputes? Why was there not one of you who could come alongside these brothers and help them see their sin and help them reconcile? All it would have taken is one person, one wise person in the church to help these unbelievers settle their disputes. But in a congregation full of supposedly wise Christians and spiritually gifted Christians, not one of them was able to help these spiritual brothers who were fighting. And as a result of this lack of wisdom, this lack of desire to glorify God through lovingly intervening in each other's lives, verse 6, Christian brothers dragged each other into court and brought shame not only on the church but on Christ as well. Based on the truths that we have in God's word, each person in the church should be competent to make peace with others and to help one another make peace with others. We should be competent to help each other grow in Christ's likeness because God has given us all the resources that we need for this task in his word. And for this reason, 
Christians are not to sue one another. We are not to take one another to court in the first place because we should not allow for our personal grievances to accumulate and to grow to the point where we bear such anger, distrust, and hatred towards one another that we ignore what the scriptures have to say about these attitudes. If we allow for sin to go unchecked in our lives, if we, if we don't desire to deal with the sins in our hearts, but, uh, but rather give them safe harbor in our lives rather than deport them, then we are not growing in Christ-likeness as we ought, but we are providing that safe haven for sin to continue to grow and fester like a bacterial infection that just continues to grow and grow and grow. The scriptures can and will help us turn away from our sinful habits, even if we are wrong. So that we together as a church can glorify God as we work ourselves through conflict. Now the competency that the Lord gives us in his word is not the only reason why we ought not to sue one another. Uh, There's a second reason. and The second reason why Christians should not sue one another is because God provides changed hearts in salvation. God provides changed hearts in salvation. Verse 7. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Noting that Christians who take other Christians to court are attempting to uh, obtain a legal victory over their opponent, Paul tells tells the believers uh, who have filed lawsuits and have dragged their brothers into court that even if they've won legally, Even if they win the legal battle, they have already lost. Who wins a legal legal argument does not matter to God. What God cares about, what he's always cared about, is the righteousness of his people. God cares about the righteousness of his people. And so by choosing to put their own rights and their own preferences before their church family, these Christians... They were not dying to self as modeled for, uh, modeled for us by, by our Lord Jesus Christ. They were living in their selfishness. They were living in their greed, their pride and, and anger. And even though they may claim to be Christians, these Corinthians who were dragging their brothers into court were not living lives that pleased God. And as a result, even, even though they might have legal victories, they were defeats because they failed to live for the glory of God in their lives, in their lawsuits. Right? Paul, he calls his reader's attention back to the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. And he asks them, in a similar vein to how Jesus taught, why they wouldn't just allow for themselves to be wronged. Why they wouldn't just allow for themselves to be defrauded. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, give him the other cheek also. And in a similar vein, and of course, Jesus says more too, but in a similar vein, Paul's just saying, look, if he's defrauding you, why don't you just let him defraud you? If he wrongs you, why don't you just let him wrong you? 
Paul, he's reminding the Corinthians of the higher standard that Christians have before the world. And he's not advocating that Christians be doormats, right? Jesus doesn't advocate for Christians to be doormats on the Sermon on the Mount. But what they're pointing to is that Christians should be humble. They should not always insist on their rights. And in, because an insistence, a stubborn insistence on upholding their rights results in what we see in verse 8. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. As we noted earlier, the Corinthians' legal battles were done in public before not only judges, but jurors as well. It was done on the public stage. And these Corinthians, when they wronged one another, when they defrauded one another, willingly, as they sought to win, no matter the cost, what they did was they ruined their reputation, they ruined their brother's reputation, they ruined the church's reputation, and most importantly, in their insistence upon their own rights, in their greed, in their stubbornness, in their selfishness, they ruined Christ's reputation before the courts, before the jurors. In short, their selfish behavior made them look just like the unbelieving Corinthians around them. And if there is no distinction from a Christian, from those who are unbelieving when it comes to lifestyle, when it comes to pursuits, when it comes to desire, is there really any reason for anyone to believe that Christ died for the sins of believers and rose again to free us from our sins? Our freedom doesn't exactly look like freedom if that's the case. Right? Because if we're still stuck in our sins, if we're still living as if nothing has happened to us, and we have supposedly repented of our sins and died to sins and live in righteousness, should we really be surprised when people mock God? Should we really be surprised when people mock Christ in your own personal circles? in social media, in the media. Should we be surprised? We shouldn't. If they mock God and Christ because the God of the Bible does not match up to their ignorant ideas of what God should look like and how he should act, that's one thing. Ignorant mocking, which stems from a heart that rejects God, ought to cause us to pray for the salvation of the mockers because they don't know any better. However, the ignorant mocking of God, which results from our sinful behavior that makes it seem as if Christ's death and resurrection have no power to cleanse us from sin, ought to cause us to repent and to return to the Lord with tears, knowing that our sin has made Jesus Christ look weak. Our sin was a mockery of the gospel. Salvation is the free gift of God, which he graciously provides to us through his gift of faith. But his salvation, though it is free, it is a priceless gift, one that costs him the life of his son. 
And if we believe, like the Corinthians did, that we can live our lives however we please, since we've prayed a prayer, we've raised our hand, we've walked down an aisle, then we are sorely mistaken. We are sorely mistaken. And we make a mockery of the Lord Jesus Christ. We make a mockery of his death and his resurrection. We cannot live as we please. Salvation is more than just raising your hand, walking down an aisle and praying a prayer. It is loving the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, mind, and soul and strength. It is loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Later in this chapter, Paul reminds believers in verse 20 that we've been bought with a price. And therefore, we are to glorify God in our bodies. This is a reminder that nothing truly is free. Someone had to pay for our forgiveness. Someone had to pay the price of our redemption. Someone had to pay the, the price of our peace with God. And the person who paid the price was Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin drank the full cup of God's wrath upon himself as he bore the sin of all of mankind upon himself so that we who believe in him may put on his righteousness and be reconciled to God the Father. But he had to bear the brunt of the full wrath of God. The person who knew nothing but the joy and blessing of fellowship with God from all eternity past was separated from God temporarily on our behalf as he took our curse upon himself so that he could save us. That's not a price that's worthless. Because of his infinite worth, it is of infinite worth. Our salvation is of infinite worth. Salvation's free. It's not cheap. Therefore, be mindful, my brothers and sisters, that we learn from the Corinthians, that we don't act as if his salvation is nothing. We're not going to pretend like we're any better than they are. We're not. We're going to have moments that we fail too, but when we struggle, let's repent. Let's return to the Lord. Let's return to the Lord so that we may glorify him before others. Now, returning to our text, Paul calls attention to the Corinthians' similarities to the unbelievers around them, and he reminds them in verse 9 to 10, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, normally when we hear this text used, it's either to warn people in evangelism that they will not be saved. Or if we expand it to verse 11, we, would, we might use these verses to encourage a believer to remind them of their identity, to remind them of the fact that they used to be a sinner, but they're no longer a sinner because of Christ. Now, when we look at these verses in context, though, what we see is a different nuance. Yes, you know, this, this is a statement about who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And yes, it is a reminder of how God saves us in salvation and who we are to be in salvation. But it is also 
a warning, a warning to people who claim to be Christians not to take God's salvation lightly. Now, obviously, the Corinthians, they know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's why uh, Paul makes it abundantly clear that, uh, that the lawsuits that they engage in are brought before those who are unrighteous. Right? Those who are, uh, sorry, uh, those who have no part in the kingdom of God. It's because they're unrighteous, because they're unsaved. But in light of what Paul says in verses 7 to 8, the question that must be asked is if you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, why, believer, do you still act like them? Why do you still look like them? Believers cannot allow themselves to be deceived by the false promises of sin. There are, there are no benefits to continue to live a life of sin if you are in Christ. Because everyone who God classifies as unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Their practices, if they continue, indicate a heart that is still in rebellion against God. And so if the Corinthians said that they believe in Christ and did all of the outward signs of being a Christian, but their lives proved that they were truly unrepentant of their sins in their hearts, then their profession of faith might be worthless. They would be just like the unrighteous who would not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, who are the unrighteous and uh, who will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, Paul has no particular uh, order to this list, nor is this a comprehensive list that explains all of the sins uh, that characterize the unrighteous who will not inherit the kingdom of God. But what we see here are some typical sins of unbelievers, um, of those who are unsaved in that time. And if you think about it, it's not too much different from what we see today, too. Right? The first people that Paul lists are those who are fornicators. These are people who are unmarried. Right? They're unmarried, but they participate in sexual acts. This is a sexual sin for unmarried people, no matter what kind of sin it is. Idolaters are those who worship false gods and, and even false worldviews. And, uh, now, you know, of course, many of us are, are not tempted to worship uh, false idols, uh, you know, statues. We're not tempted to worship those things, but our hearts are prone to idolatry. John Calvin says that our hearts are factories of idols. We, we make our own idols. Sometimes our idols are good things that we, that we should desire, but we desire it too much. Uh, or perhaps we just place our faith in things that we should be placing our faith in. Like, uh, you know, right now, we, we know that we're in politics season. We're in an election cycle. And uh, there's a great emphasis out there to vote, and you know, it is important, right? But if we place our hope, our hope for this life in the election cycle, if we place our hope in our life, uh, of our life in politicians, we've placed our hope in the wrong thing. Our hope's not supposed to be in them, it's supposed to be in Christ. And so that could be an idol for us as well. So be mindful of that, brothers and sisters. We do, after all, live in San Francisco. We are very political people. So be mindful of that. Be careful of that. Uh, there are adulterers. The, and adulterers refer to married people who commit sexual sin. Uh, the next two, the effeminate and homosexuals, it refers to uh, acts of homosexuality. 
Right? Those who are effeminate are, are the males who take on the, female, the, the role of a female in, in, in uh, sexual sin. And homosexuality, of course, refers to homosexual sin between males uh, or females. Thieves are obviously those who steal. And uh, those who are covetous uh, may not necessarily steal, but they deeply desire what other people want with envy in their hearts. Drunkards is pretty self-explanatory. It's the sin of drunkenness. And, and notice, however, notice, however, that Paul has no concept of drunkenness as a disease like we do today. He leaves it in the territory of sin as a heart issue. Drunkenness is enslavement to alcohol. And we don't have time to unpack that more, but it is a sin. It is a heart issue. And if you want to read more about it, I would highly commend to you the the book Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave by Ed Welch. Revilers are, are those who are abusive in their speech. And we might not always think of our speech as abusive, but it would be good for us to consider whether the majority of our words are are full of grace, blessing, and they're life-giving, or, or whether there's poison in our words. Do we have words that tear others down, that insult others? Um, we, we need to be mindful of the power of our words, and James can, uh, the book of James speaks to that. Uh, swindlers are those who will steal, but they do so in clever ways. And today we, we know uh, swindlers primarily in the form of scanners and identity thieves and, and, and those responsible for white-collar crimes. But swindlers, just like back then, continue to operate today with um, uh, relative uh, freedom. Now, there are, of course, surely other types of sins that unbelievers do that will cause them not to inherit the kingdom of God. But the root of all of these sins is unbelief in Christ and a refusal to repent of their sins. However, however, despite this bad news that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, there is good news. Believers are not characterized by these sins any longer. Paul says this, such were, in verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Such were some of you. Paul's list of sins probably brought some of the, um, some of the believers in, his congreg- in the Corinthian congregation back to their old days. And they probably thought, ooh, that was me. Ooh, that was me. Ow, 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 Paul, stop. It probably hurt a little bit to be reminded of their former sins. But what Paul wants them to remember is that those who have genuinely believed in Christ and repented of their sins, that's who they once were. They are no longer that way. They are no longer to be characterized by their sin or to even think of themselves as uh, as described by their former sins. They're a new creation. They're a new person in Christ. Notice the quick succession of the word but. It appears three times. And in both Greek and English grammar, it's unnecessary to repeat the word three times. You could use it once to emphasize the contrast that, uh, between who the Corinthians once were and who they are now. But Paul, he emphasizes this contrast three times. It stops you. He emphasizes it three times to demonstrate how God has drastically changed their hearts in salvation. No longer are the believing Corinthians enslaved to their sins, 
No longer are they in danger of experiencing the wrath of God against all unrighteousness, but they are now righteous in the sight of God because of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says, but you were washed. That's not a reference to baptism or even a suggestion that baptism removes sin. It's a reference to the cleansing that takes place when God replaces our spiritually dead heart with a new heart. All of our sins are washed away. we washed clean. And so we praise our God because we who were once dead are now alive. Our sins are completely gone. There are no stains. We are white as snow. But you were sanctified. That's a reference to how God works in the lives of believers to transform them more and more in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And and this is a, a work that God does through the Holy Spirit in conjunction with us so that we can be more like Jesus Christ. Right? That's why we put off the old man and we put on the new man. That's why Paul says uh, later on in, in 1 Corinthians that he disciplines his body and he makes it his slave so that after he preaches, he will not be disqualified. There is an action that we take in sanctification as well. Right? But God is the one who gives us the power to do that. But you are justified. That's a reference to how God grants believers salvation, how he legally declares all of us not just not guilty, but innocent. He declares us innocent because of the innocent life of Christ, the righteous life of Christ. God grants us judicially Christ's righteousness. God himself is the one who saves sinners from our sins. And he does so through his son, Jesus Christ, and through his Holy Spirit. And so while we may struggle with the sin that remains in our lives, the contrast of who we used to be and who we are now couldn't be more real. It couldn't be more stark. God has changed our hearts in salvation. And so we don't have to to stay in the cycles of sin that we used to be in. We have a new life, and so we should act according to that new life. The way that we used to act is not, uh, is not a determining factor of who we are forever. Just because you used to be like that, or just because you think that you are a certain way, doesn't mean that you are destined to stay that way. You are destined to be like Jesus Christ. You are not destined to be characterized by your sin. So we can, we can choose to act differently. We can choose to glorify God in our disputes. We can choose to resolve the differences that we have with others and to pursue peace with one another as we strive to love one another. Before Paul wrote to the Corinthians, these Corinthians were still acting as if they were unbelievers. They dragged each other into court, and they were airing out their dirty laundry before the public. And at the heart of all of their lawsuits against one another was anger, pride, and selfishness, which ultimately resulted in a failure to resolve conflicts biblically. And in this morning's passage, Paul reminded the Corinthians and us of two reasons why we should not sue one another. God, he provides us with the competency that we need to be at peace. 
to handle disputes. God has also, secondly, provided us with changed hearts in salvation so that we would not be doomed to living a life of sin continually. God has given us everything that we need to live righteously here in this life and to help others live righteously here in this life. Now, while many of you are probably unlikely to sue other Christians, what we've learned this morning reminds us that Christians have a responsibility not only to be unified in the sense that we come together and we're not at obvious war with one another, but we are also to be at peace with one another. Our unity is bigger than just not having any surface-level problems. God has also called for us to be at peace. He's called for us to love one another. And if we find ourselves in a situation that is that, uh, in which we're at odds with, with others, God has given us all the resources that we need in the scriptures to be at peace, to learn to be at peace, to make peace. And, it, and if our former response to conflict is to give others the silent treatment, to talk behind their backs with others or to hold grudges, if that was our former manner of life, don't think that God gives you excuses for that now that God is pleased with your response, or that he excuses you because, well, I understand he wronged you, so therefore, you, therefore it's okay for you to feel this way. You can continue to hold a grudge against him. You can walk the other way. Um, no. God's not pleased with those former types of responses. That's who we once were. Those types of responses are the same type of responses that unbelievers have towards one another. And brothers and sisters, I know that many of us have those patterns of, of supposed conflict resolution in our lives. And we give each other silent treatment. We don't talk to each other. We walk the other way. We say vicious things about these, other pe- about these people whenever we get a chance. And that's, that's what we do as unbelievers. We shouldn't do that anymore. That's still sin. God has given us all the resources that we need in the scriptures to seek to glorify him in conflict. And at the very core of these resources that we have is the peace that we have with God. Because God has made peace with us by forgiving us of all of our sins that we've done against him, we can can be at peace with others. He can be at peace with us when we even fail to be faithful on a daily basis. And and he continues to forgive us even though we continue to sin. And if, if he can do that, and if we've experienced that forgiveness from God, can't we show that forgiveness to other people? Shouldn't we show that forgiveness to other people? We can Now, sin definitely makes things more complicated, and there may be some other factors that are involved that require intervention from people outside the church. Sometimes lawsuits are unavoidable. Sometimes law enforcement does need to get involved. But even if sin makes things complicated to the point where we do need to do those things, then our goal is to still go about 
those conflicts in a manner that glorify Christ. Right? The cases that we, we talked about today, where people with brothers dragging each other into court, more, were more civil disputes. They weren't criminal disputes. They were more civil disputes. Forgot to mention that earlier. So, um, in those civil disputes, we can make sure that we glorify God. But, uh, you know, this, even in criminal uh, disputes, we, we can seek to glorify God in those matters as well. Right? Um, brothers and sisters, I, I, know, I know that living according to God's high calling is incredibly difficult. But praise be to God. Praise be to God that he is the one who enables us and strengthens us to obey even when it's hard. The proof of our God's love for us and the hope that he gives for us to become more like his son Jesus Christ is found in no one other than Jesus Christ. Because Christ was born, because he lived a perfect life of obedience and willingly went to the cross on our behalf, because he was raised from the dead, we have hope. Conflict resolution in the church, confrontation restoration. It might be a little messy, but it's worth it in the end because we have peace with one another. And more importantly, we have peace with God. We reconcile each other back to the Lord in that time. So we have hope that God wants us to be righteous, wants us to be reconciled. And if he wants us to do that, he's given us the resources to do that. We have hope because the sin which entangles us and ensnares us at times in this life will not win in the end. It's already defeated. We have hope that God delights in those who love him and strive to please him. So let us endeavor to glorify our God in all aspects of life together. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for your word and for how it teaches us how it teaches us in all manners of our lives, how it reminds us that, Lord, you don't call for us to deal with our conflicts like unbelievers do, but you call for us to deal with conflicts in a loving way because we're one in Christ. Even though we might not sue one another, even though we might not take each other to court or allow for our grievances to get to the point where we cannot, where we cannot do anything else but um, drag each other through the mud before unbelievers, even though we might not do that, or even think about doing that, we pray that, Lord, you would help us to learn from the examples of the Corinthians to use the wisdom and the truths that are found in your word to help us learn how to make peace with one another. More importantly than just making sure that we're at peace with one another, we pray that you would help us to live righteous lives, that you would help us to strive to put away the sin that so burdens us and, and, and slows us down, help us to put on righteousness, 
to desire righteousness, to make the most of the time because the days are evil. We pray that as we interact with the world, that we would truly be your ambassadors. That when people see us, when they see our behavior, when they see the way that we think, when they see the way that we act, uh, when they see the way that we, um, the way that we even bounce back from instances of sin in our lives, that they would, uh, that they would see you. We know that we're going to eventually sin be, before unbelievers, and we pray that, Lord, when we do sin, that we would repent before them too so that they can see that you actually do make a difference in our lives. That we are not hypocrites who stay in our sins. But when we do engage in hypocrisy, we strive to snap back to right action because we love you. And we desire for you to be honored among all the peoples. We pray, Father, that you would help us to glorify you in everything. May you be pleased in how we interact with one another. Help us to to learn to love one another better, to resolve conflicts your way, not ours. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for attending our Sunday worship service. We're so glad that you joined us this morning. Um, And, uh, um, yeah, we will see uh, those of you who are members later at our church family meeting. And uh, for those of you who are not members, uh, we will see you next week. Have a blessed week, everyone. God bless.